Why don't we stand up and pray, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get started, all right? Okay. Well, Lord Jesus, um, it is our honor to do our best to honor your word, what you meant by what you communicated to us in your word. And Lord, I do believe that like all things revealed in your word, you want us to understand and perhaps not fully and completely understand everything. But what we do know, we should know accurately. And uh, so I just pray that you would teach us tonight and that you would simplify what has become, I believe, unnecessarily complex. And for those seeking baptism or for those that just want a better understanding of it, I pray that tonight... Some of that could be cleared up. So thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So when it comes to uh, baptism, what it is exactly, uh, how it should be practiced, and who it is for, uh, that has made a few people's heads spin. And as I mentioned, depending on which tradition that you've come from, uh, there's just so many different answers to all of this. And... uh, I remember in school studying baptism for the first time that I couldn't, I was astounded by how many uh, different answers there were to all the different questions. And, and then I wondered how in the world did they come up with so many questions and so many different statements of faith. And um, yeah, so it's interesting uh, reading all of the positions of the traditions and then uh, going to the scriptures and looking at what they actually say And after studying the various positions on the subject, in light of Scripture, uh, one can wonder where those traditions got their information. Uh, Some of the language, some of the ideas, uh, as you're reading them, your mind is naturally uh, searching what you know about the Scriptures to try to find where they got that. And uh, then you go to the Scriptures, you read the passages on baptism, and then you're even more uncertain where they got it. And uh, it, it can be a little bit maddening. And so it's, it's very interesting. Um, how many guys were baptized as infants? Was anybody in here sprinkled as an adult? As a child? Okay, as a child. So some as infants, some as children, but nobody as an adult. Nobody was converted uh, to a liturgical form as an adult. I was hoping I had somebody. Okay, all right. All right. So one of the huge debates that we'll have to address tonight is... Baptism symbolic, or is it efficacious? And we'll talk about that a little bit. So what do the scriptures say? What is it? What is it not? How should it be done? Who should be baptized? And what happens at baptism? How many of you guys baptized as adults anticipated some big thing when you were baptized? Okay. How many of you guys anticipated that you would speak in tongues when you were baptized? It's okay. You're safe in this room. Okay. One person. All right. Yeah, did you guys know that was a thing? That in some traditions, they expect you to speak in tongues when you're baptized with water baptism. Who knew? Yeah. So let's first try to evaluate some of these. Getting to what it is, uh, is can take a while as we go through a lot of the scriptures to where we finally arrive at uh, what the scriptures say it actually is. Because in the Gospels, it never says what it actually is. Okay, I think we can deduce and try to and try to. We can say some things that it is not, and some things that it is. But uh, so it can be fun. So let's begin when baptism first began. 
In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, John the baptizer came preaching, saying that people should repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. But not simply the kingdom, of course, but that the king himself was at hand. Now, there's no definition there of what, of, of what baptism is. It's just that people should be baptized. Okay? Now, baptism, when John comes on the scene in this form, it's something completely new. He's using a, a word that is specific to what he's doing. He's not using uh, other words or even similar words that was used in other contexts. He's doing something completely new. Okay? And in fact, part of the reason we know it's new is because not just the word is unique uh, for this, but also the Pharisees came to him and they were trying to figure out why John was baptizing Jews because there was only a ceremonial kind of bath for Gentiles converting to Judaism. So they said, why then do you baptize Jews if you're not Messiah and so forth? Is it, you know, so they were confused by it as well. So if you're confused, don't feel bad. Everybody was a little thrown. So people came to John, the text goes on to say, confessing their sins, and those who heeded John's command to repent were then baptized, verse 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 3. So the order is actually extremely significant in the discussion on baptism. So John preached the repentance of sin. In response, people confessed their sins, and those who repented of sin were then baptized. Those that had confessed their sins and repented, they wanted to be baptized to prepare for the coming kingdom to make ready for the king. So at that time, the question might be asked, how does one prepare himself? How does one get ready for the kingdom? John would say, confess your sins, repent, and then be baptized. Okay, so baptism was at least initially, initially a way of preparing people for the kingdom. Okay? It was preparatory. But then, in verse 11, John says that he baptized with water unto repentance. So we have to answer this question, and it's, this is probably, um, I think this is probably the most complicated thing about all of it, is this silly little word, unto. What does unto repentance mean? Because we're going to say, unto the forgiveness of sins later. No small debate about that word. Uh, but we'll get more into what unto means later, but for now... It wasn't, baptism wasn't how someone obtained, achieved, or secured repentance. Repentance wasn't conveyed to the person by way of baptism. So we might say no one got baptized in order to repent. That's important, okay? Baptism is what they did because they repented. So one might ask then, why did you get baptized? Why? To show that I had repented in order to get ready for the king and his kingdom. Okay? So in its infancy, we might say that uh, that is what baptism was, a public demonstration of one's commitment of repentance in preparation for the king and his kingdom. So repentance simply made someone a candidate for baptism. So I think that's interesting, that the first thing really discussed about baptism is who's a candidate for it, not what it actually is. I mean, if I had it my way, I would say, what is it first? You understand what I'm saying? But instead, candidacy was, was first. So we haven't exactly answered, what is baptism? Okay, we'll come back to that. Let's look at, real quick, just for a second, what baptism is not, okay? We've already kind of stated this. Being baptized didn't somehow 
transform a sinful person into a repentant person. And I say that because there are people that believe that, okay? And that was held on to for a very, very long time in church history. Baptism didn't actually procure repentance for them. No one obtained repentance by way of baptism. So baptism, we have to say, is not efficacious. It does not secure anything or do anything to the person baptized. Baptism signifies that someone has repented in preparation for the king and his kingdom. Okay, let's move on to how baptism should be done. We'll come back to what baptism is. The text says that John's baptism was a water baptism. Now, as you go through the scriptures, you learn that there are other baptisms. There's a number of different things that are said to be baptisms. Baptisms into suffering, baptisms into Christ, baptisms of the Spirit, so forth. John's baptism was a baptism uh, with water. So we have to ask, how should someone be baptized with water? Okay, the word baptize here in our text is the Greek word baptizo, which means to submerge, dip, to plunge, to immerse. Now, it does not mean to sprinkle. That would be the Greek word rentizo, which is never used in the Bible when referring to baptism. Okay, it does not mean to wash. Okay, that's the Greek word nipto, which is also never used in the context of baptism. Neither does it refer to a ceremonial washing. Baptism does not refer to a ceremonial washing. That's the Greek word baptismos, which is also never used of baptism. You understand? So there's a similar word, but never used in the context biblically for baptism. So the Bible only knows water baptism by way of immersion, never sprinkling, never washing, and never ceremonial cleansing. Okay? Now, as you know, there's groups that sprinkle for baptism, as we've said, like Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, um, we could go on, okay? But there's no biblical basis for the practice. Now, words are important, amen? And we should keep to their meaning. So when we baptize people, that is, when I say we, I mean Calvary Chapel, we immerse them all the way under, and if we like them, we bring them back up, okay? We go all the way under, all the way back up again. Um, now, we know that John preached for a while, and then Jesus comes on the scene. He baptizes Jesus. Then Jesus goes into the desert. He's tempted, and then he begins his ministry. And the exact same phrase as John the Baptist comes out of Jesus' mouth, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we know from John's gospel, Jesus never baptized anybody. Okay, but his disciples did the baptizing, and they were actually doing the same like baptism of repentance by immersion okay, as John was doing. Okay? But then after his resurrection, things regarding baptism began to change. And I guess that could throw some confusion in there as well. Meaning was being added to baptism as time progressed. It initially happened after Jesus' resurrection. So now we kind of come back to the question, what is baptism? Now, the difference in baptism was first addressed by Jesus, as I said, after the resurrection, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus gave the commission to the church to make disciples. He said, go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. When we go to Luke's gospel, 
24, verse 47, it's added that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. So not just repentance, okay, but also the remission of, of sins. So in Jesus' words, it becomes clear that it's no longer just an issue of repentance, but one regarding forgiveness of sins and discipleship, okay? People weren't baptized by John the Baptist on account of the remission of sins because that provision had not yet been made. He was preparing people for the coming of Jesus, but there's no way he could provide forgiveness, right? That had to come through Christ and his sacrifice. People weren't baptized to show that they were disciples of John, but people were baptized to signify their commitment to Christ. So we're adding significance or meaning to baptism. So it's not just a baptism of repentance in preparation for the kingdom. It became a baptism for those who had trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sin and were committing to being his disciples by obeying his commands. The king had come and they were following him. And if you wanted to follow Jesus, you had to be baptized. So water, water baptism is taking on new meaning. Now, this continued shortly after Jesus' ascension. The issue of the forgiveness of sins as being added to baptism uh, comes immediately in the preaching of the apostles. Acts 2.38, Peter said to the crowd, remember they said, what must we do? He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So the post-resurrection baptism had to do, again, with repentance of sin and the forgiveness of it. Now, real quick, uh, repentance, that's the responsibility of the sinner, right? Whose responsibility is the remission of sins? That's Christ's. That's right. Now, the challenge at this juncture is the phrase, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. What does it mean to be baptized for the remission of sins? What does Peter mean by the word for, for. Now, it actually comes from the same Greek word used in Matthew 3.11, where John the baptizer said that his baptism was a baptism unto repentance. For whatever reason, the translators rendered it unto in Matthew 3.11 and for in Acts 2.38, but it's the same Greek word. It's the word ice, okay? So the question is, what does ice mean? Well, whatever it does mean, it has to mean the same in both of them. Because the phrase is identical, except we're substituting the word sin for repentance. So what does it mean? Well, let me, let me put the same translation in Acts 2.38 as Matthew 3.11. So it would say, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of sins. I think the word for, because what it really can only mean in English, confuses uh, this, this issue. Unto the forgiveness of sins. Does unto mean that water baptism in the name of Jesus causes our forgiveness? Is, is baptism the way we get forgiven, in other words? Is it the means? Is being plunged into the water and then brought back out the means by which we are forgiven? Are we forgiven not before, but at the very moment of our baptism or even because of baptism? So does ice refer to the purpose for which someone is baptized, or does ice refer to the grounds upon which someone is baptized? Well, guess what? The Greek word can mean both. <laughs> so now you can understand why there's debates about 
all of this, okay? If Peter is using ice in regard to the purpose for baptism so that you could be forgiven, he means that we get baptized in order to be forgiven. Baptism, baptism would then be the very means by which sin is remitted. But if Peter was using ice to speak of the grounds upon which we are baptized, he means that we get baptized because we have been forgiven already. It's on account of our sins being forgiven that we get baptized, which would mean having been forgiven and repented of sins makes me a candidate for baptism. So in other words, this would be saying baptism is for those who've already repented of their sins. They've already trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins, and therefore they can be baptized. They don't get baptized to obtain the forgiveness of sins. That makes it fun, doesn't it? Both are possible. Now, I have wrestled with that over the years, and part of the wrestling match comes because um, I can point to multiple uh, passages in the New Testament where one is purpose and one is the grounds upon. So like an example of it being the grounds upon which it is done, uh, it says the people repented at the preaching of Jonah. They repented because, okay? It's, it's interesting, the whole thing. Now, because of how we grapple with baptism throughout the scriptures, uh, I have uh, cited that this is the grounds upon which. Okay? I do not believe that baptism um, is the means of forgiveness. I don't think that baptism literally washes away my sins. Uh, because no one is willing to say, really, that it conveys repentance. But a lot of people will say it conveys forgiveness. But the phrases are identical, minus the, just the changing of the two words, repentance and sin. So it makes no sense in one, but some believe that it makes sense in another. I can't follow them down that, that road, okay? So I do not believe that baptism cleanses us. This order is logically implied in Matthew 28, 19. So Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, that is, baptizing those who become disciples. They were to only baptize who? Disciples. And a disciple is someone who has repented of their sin. They've already trusted in Christ for, for forgiveness of sins, and they've committed to obeying his commands. If they hadn't done all of that, do you think you could talk them into baptism? Why, why would a pagan in the first century give himself to this kind of rite if that wasn't true of him? In fact, what they did in Antioch, most believed that they were mocking them. Uh, even the word Christian, uh, they, most scholars believe, was, was initially intended as an insult, a ridicule. These little Jesuses who get baptized to demonstrate that they're his disciples. So that just doesn't make any sense to me. Okay? They only baptized people who had made that commitment, who had exercised faith in Christ. The apostles never baptized anyone before they repented and trusted in Christ for forgiveness. That leads us into the next question. Who should be baptized? That is, who's qualified as a candidate for baptism? Now, we've already stated from Matthew 28, the Great Commission, that disciples of Jesus are the only candidates for baptism. Okay? A disciple of Christ, they've, they've repented, they've trusted, they've been forgiven. And no one has any real conflict with that conclusion, at least when it comes to adults. But what about infants and children who are not yet able to understand sin and repentance and the nature of Jesus' sacrifice? Now, if, we're, if we were to somehow create a statistic 
regarding all the baptisms throughout church history, most people were baptized as a baby. Crazy, huh? Yeah. The church has been baptizing infants. And it wasn't really till the Reformation in the 1500s, a group known as the Anabaptists, they argued that if the scriptures are the final authority regarding the Christian faith and its practice, why are we baptizing infants? Why are we doing that? There's just no evidence of it in the scriptures. There's no instruction. Uh, there's no command in the Bible to do it. And there are no examples of a single infant being baptized. If that is the case, why are we doing this? How many guys know who R.C. Sproul is? One of the most famous theologians uh, in the last 50 years of the church. Okay? He asked John MacArthur, well, first, R.C. Sproul believed in infant baptism. And he asked John MacArthur, who does not believe in infant baptism, if John would be willing to debate him at a conference, to which John responded, are you sure you want to do that? Because you don't have a leg to stand on. Okay? And he's right. There really is no debate. There's just no debate. There's no passage of scripture, like we said, no command, and there's no example. You can't turn to a passage of scripture that says an infant was being baptized. So why practice it? Now, some do it because that's how we've always done it. You've heard those kind of things before. Well, we've always done it this way. People say, well, that's tradition. And some people elevate tradition to essentially the authority of Scripture. Others adhere to a theology known as covenant theology. And now, listen carefully. Covenant theology assumes that the new covenant, the new covenant is just a continuation of the old covenant rather than a new and distinct covenant altogether, as Hebrews 8.13 teaches, as I've taught incessantly over the last four years. Okay? Covenant theology, because of this, assumes that baptism replaces circumcision as the sign and seal of the covenant. So circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, and they say baptism is the sign and seal of the new covenant. And since God commanded infants to be circumcised in the old covenant, it only makes sense to baptize infants in the new covenant. Well, that only makes sense if you embrace covenant theology, the idea that the new covenant is just a continuation, an addition to the old. But the new covenant doesn't support this. Okay? And so I think they can assume all they want, but the scriptures just don't agree. Only repentant believers should be baptized, and only believers should be baptized. That excludes infants. Now, the same principle is true in communion. Okay, Paul says that if someone does not discern the Lord's body as it relates to his sacrifice, he says they should not eat at the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 11, 26 through 29. That most definitely excludes infants, doesn't it? Yeah. So for that reason, baptism and the Lord's table, they're off limits to those people. So who should be baptized? Well, it's easy. Those who have repented of their sin, they've trusted in Christ for the remission of sins, and they've committed to being his disciples. Does anybody know what that has been called, that kind of baptism over the years? It's real simple. Believer's baptism. Believer's baptism. Infants do not have the ability to believe. They don't have the ability to repent. Okay? They don't know what sin is. They're just not there yet. So here at Calvary Chapel, we exercise believer's baptism. What happens at baptism? Two things. First, the person being baptized gets wet. That's what happens, okay? But other than that, nothing happens to them, all right? Uh, they're not repentant because of the baptism. Their sins have not been forgiven 
because they were baptized. Their sins are not literally washed away when they get baptized. They don't get saved the moment they're baptized. Some believe in uh, baptismal regeneration, that when you get baptized, by virtue of the baptism, you're saved. Uh, They don't become a new person the moment they're baptized. Baptism doesn't do anything to the person being baptized except making them wet. But because baptism does represent something, okay, we can say that it does, we are symbolizing something during baptism. Now, one of the most obvious things that are symbolized is the believer's death and resurrection, right? So uh, Paul says to the Romans, he says, you know, this comes from another question. He says, uh, a question they might be asking, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, certainly not. He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united, literally planted, like seed in the ground, together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. I find that interesting that he uses the word planted because Jesus said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it grows up and bears much fruit, doesn't it? It produces, yeah. So baptism represents, it symbolizes death with Christ and our resurrection with Christ. When we go down under the water, it symbolizes our death and burial. And when we come out of the water, it represents our rising from the dead into a new kind of life. We might say a new existence. Paul continues, he says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So going into the water symbolizes the death of our old man who perished when we placed our faith in Christ. The result was the body of sin. He says in, this tra- in my translation here, says done away with, uh, it should probably be translated uh, rendered inoperative, okay? How many of you guys notice that the old man, the body of sin, has not been destroyed? Spencer, raise your hand. Okay, all right. Through death, our old man, this body of sin, was rendered inoperative. It was, uh, it could be translated even put out of business, as it were. It's no longer Uh, What the meaning is, at the helm of our lives, we've been freed from its dominance. So baptism symbolizes death, resurrection, and freedom from the power of sin. Because we have died with Christ from the bondage of sin and risen with Christ to new life, we can live for God, Paul concludes, live for God in righteousness. So we, we died to sin, the old man, all that, his dominance over us. Uh, Paul uses regal terms. It reigned over us prior to our regeneration. But through faith, we died with Christ. We were plunged into death. And we were, we rendered the old, he rendered the old man inoperative. And then we were raised to a new kind of life so that we could live uh, righteously, so we could live unto God as a true disciple of Jesus. So what happens when we get baptized, well, we get wet, 
but we're portraying something, okay? We're symbolizing something in the action. We're dying, we're burying somebody in the tomb, and then we're bringing them back up in resurrection. And that symbolizes leaving their old life, goes into the grave, coming up out of the water, coming out of the grave in order to live a new kind of life. Let me read some of that passage to you as Paul continues there. One of the very interesting things about Romans, you know, all of Paul's letters, you know, they start with uh, doxology, um, prayers, and things like that. Uh, Then they get into theology, and then finally Paul starts to uh, give commands, imperatives, instruction to the believer. But Romans 6 is unique because he gets all the way to chapter 6, and then verse 11 is the first time he tells us to do anything. All of it is pure theology up to that point, except for the first few verses, uh, not the first verses, but just a few mingled in the first part of the first chapter. So let me read this whole section to you. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin, that's died to sin's dominion, live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Or even so we should also live a new kind of life, a resurrected life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with or rendered inoperative, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also, first imperative, Reckon or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's actually two imperatives there. You got to reckon yourself or consider yourself dead to sin, and you have to consider yourself alive to God. Those are terms of faith. You must believe this. And then he says the third imperative, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members at your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. There's weeks of sermons in verse 14. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know? that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And actually it should be translated the doctrine that was delivered to you. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of 
righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of unrighteousness or slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members of slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that whole discussion comes out of what baptism portrays. It's death to sin it's life unto God. We, we trade in, as it were, our life of unrighteousness for a life of holiness. That's what baptism conveys. And this is what I love about baptism. Typically in the scriptures, it's a, it's a public thing that is done. There's a couple, uh, what we, there's at least one private baptism in the scriptures. That's the, the jailer, the, Philipp, the Philippian jailer, except his family was there, right? But all of the other ones were, were very public. And so in this portrayal, it's a profession, it's a communication that uh, both to three groups, to God, to the church, and to the world. You're saying to the world, I no longer belong to you, but through faith in Christ, I've been incorporated into the body of Christ. I'm a part of him. I'm a part of them. I'm no longer that, but I'm this. I have died by faith with Christ, and I've been risen again to a new life, not to live like I did with you, but now as a disciple of Christ to live according to his word. Amen.